weird. <laughs> hey everyone, and welcome to Chef AJ Live. I'm your host, Chef AJ, and this is where I introduce you to amazing people like you who are doing great things in the world that I think you should know about. Today's guest is backed by popular demand. She is an amazing plant-based doctor who actually does private virtual consultations, which is something that is much needed in the space of gastroenterology. She's also triple board certified, not just in gastroenterology, but also internal medicine and lifestyle medicine, which means she cares about whether or not you sleep, what you eat, do you exercise, do you have stress, questions that most doctors don't even have time to ask you. And she's just all around awesome. She's a new mother. You should follow her on Instagram <laughs> if you want to see some adorable pictures of her children. Please welcome back to the show, Dr. Vanessa Mendez. It's so nice to see you again. Thank you so much for having me again, AJ. You know, I love coming on your show um, and speaking to your audience about all sorts of nutrition health topics. I'm excited to um, be talking about IBS today, irritable bowel syndrome, which is such a common uh, digestive disorder affecting millions of people worldwide. Um, and yeah, I'm, I'm happy to be here and be sharing this space with you guys. Well, thank you so much, because I mean, it seems like either everybody I know either has IBS or lives with somebody that has IBS. Absolutely. I mean, in the world that we're living in, um, not only because of all the stressors that are being bombarded at our, you know, at our eyes constantly, um, but also, you know, all the issues with nutrition in, in, on the planet um, is just a recipe for disaster in terms of gut health. And especially when it comes to IBS, it's the most common condition we see in the, in the digestive health space. And it's one of those conditions that people, they, they suffer in silence a lot and they suffer, for, it seems, for a very long time. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, there's two sides to the story. So basically, um, a lot of people come with digestive issues and they are told right off the bat, oh, you have IBS. Um, and um, that's just simply not true. Irritable bowel syndrome is a diagnosis of exclusion. That means that we have to have rolled out other digestive issues um, with testing um, before we come to the diagnosis of irritable bowel syndrome. So um, just dismissing patients like like that and saying you're you have IBS without doing an investigation getting to that root cause of their symptoms is definitely one of the main issues um, on the other side you know we don't have uh, a lot of great medical therapies for IBS there are some medical therapies out there um, but from my experience an integrative approach is really the way to go with this because it's just it really is a gut brain disorder it you both have to tackle the gut, but also um, the gut brain connection. So we'll dig into that today. Yeah, a long time ago, probably before you were born, didn't they think it was just like hysteria? Like weren't, weren't people often dismissed with this diagnosis? Was yeah, like absolutely. Illness? A hundred percent. And um, because if it's a diagnosis where um, we investigate with therapies, labs, imaging, and sometimes colonoscopy and endoscopy, and we don't find anything, um, it's kind of like a, an invisible disorder, um, then patients were dismissed and continue to be dismissed, even though now we have a lot, a lot of studies showing that this is um, a two pathway disorder. It basically affects the motility of your gut, how fast or slow things are moving through your digestive system, but it also is a disorder of hypersensitivity. Um, we have studies showing that you take a person without irritable bowel syndrome and one with IBS, um, you blow up a balloon in their rectum and the person without IBS um, just perceives it as some discomfort, but the person with IBS will get excruciating pain. Um, so there's definitely a lot of science behind it, but patients continue to be dismissed um, and told that this is in their head. They only have to manage their stress and they're going to be fine. And it's just a lot more complex than that. What is the name of that test? I never had it. I'd love to have it. And does it have to be done by a gastroenterologist? Uh, the balloon, the rectal balloon. Yeah. So that was a study that was done. Um, we do have some tests like that, um, but that was just under, under research conditions that it was done. Um, we don't have, we don't do that for patients, like, because it's a clinical diagnosis. We, I can tell by talking to you whether, and after ruling out other conditions, whether you have um, IBS or not. So you don't have to have uh, that test. And again, it's not, it's not a test that's actually um, available to be ordered. 
Okay, I was just wondering because it sounds it sounds very interesting. When somebody experiences GI symptoms, you can't always see a gastroenterologist right away, especially if you don't have one. You know what I mean? You often have to go through your primary. Right. Yeah, absolutely. So there's a lot of, you know, we know there's a lot of issues with the healthcare industry and especially the insurance companies. So um, a lot of insurance companies will um, put restrictions on referrals um, and patients won't be able to make a GI appointment themselves, but a lot of, a lot of people, um, um, uh, will go outside their insurance and be just see a, a specialist just because, um, either their primary care won't refer them or, you know, um, or for many other reasons, but traditionally, yes, um, uh, patients usually have to go to their primary care doctor first. Um, a lot of insurance companies, uh, discourage, uh, primary care doctors from referring, to specialists, which is another big issue in, in, in the health space. But you're a primary in a way and a GI doctor. So somebody, if, if they were suffering and couldn't get in, you, you do do virtual appointments. Do you do them in multi-states or could you talk a little bit about how somebody could see you? Because when I had Dr. Will B on a few weeks ago, you know, he's not seeing patients. He, yeah. he just said, see Dr. Mendez. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So Will's a good friend of mine. So he's always sending patients over. Um, so yeah, so I'm the uh, co-founder of a, a telemedicine practice called Planted Forward. We're integrative multi-specialty practice. So we have our integrative digestive team, which I'll show at the end of the slides. We have a cardiologist, a preventative cardiologist. Um, we have a pediatrician who is lifestyle medicine board certified as well. We have uh, several dietitians who are specialized in digestive disorders, and we have a health coach as well. So um, the way that we function is we're through telemedicine. Um, most of us can see patients in California, in Florida, and New York and our dietitians, fortunately, because they're not bound by doctor uh, restrictions of licensing, can see patients in um, about 15 to 20 states. So um, definitely they're part of our integrative team and they are a must when, when working through digestive issues. So even if you're not in California, Florida, or New York, still reach out to us because our dietitians are likely to be able to see you. And again, they work um, under me, for example, if it comes to a digestive disorder. Um, so patients don't need a referral to see us because we um, don't take insurance. The reason we don't take insurance is because insurance models uh, do bind us to that 15, 20 minute um, appointment time. Um, you know, it's kind of like an assembly line of patients and we're not able to give you the care that you need and deserve um, through that insurance models. But any labs, um, supplements or medications that or imaging that we may need to order is, is through your insurance. It goes through your insurance as usual. So the only thing that works a little bit differently is just seeing our consultations. You don't need a referral and it's just direct pay. Great. Thank you. I know that you had some slides prepared. Would you like to share them? Yes, absolutely. So let me go on here and then share this. Can you see it? I sure can. Perfect, so that worked. I'm getting better at this, AJ. I'm <laughs> technologically challenged. <laughs> All right, so today we're gonna be uh, uh, defining irritable bowel syndrome, um, how to manage it, uh, where the microbiome and the immune system are at play in this, and some of the integrative strategies we can use to manage patients with IBS. So what is IBS? Um, and we'll have a lot of time, I think, for questions at the end, and I'll just try to go through these slides um, so that we have enough time. So IBS is a functional GI disorder um, where patients suffer from abdominal pain and altered bowel habits. What's that mean? So you have abdominal discomfort, uh, sometimes abdominal pain, and then a change in how your bowel habits um, are. So either looser, more diarrhea, or more constipation, um, harder stools, or a mix of both. Um, and like I mentioned before, there we know now through many studies that there is a disruption in the motility of your gut, um, how fast things are moving through your gut, either too slowly, too fast, or a mix of both. And there is visceral hypersensitivity. Those are big terms, but it means that you're more hypersensitive um, to foods, to bloating, to gas. So a person who has, like I mentioned before, there was a study where um, somebody without IBS, they blow up a balloon in their rectum 
And that person will um, feel discomfort, but it'll be tolerable. And the person with IBS will just feel a discomfort that is out of proportion to the amount of, of um, air that was put into that rectal balloon. So it is a hypersensitive gut. So things that you eat um, and things you put in your body, uh, definitely um, stressors in your life will all affect this. Um, so it's a condition that's affected by many things, not only nutrition, but also many other things that are happening in your life. Um, it's very common. It's the most common disorder we see in my practice and in GI practices throughout the world. Um, and it affects uh, about 15% of the world's population, which is incredibly high, right? Um, and um, in the United States, about 45 million people. But again, these are diagnosed. So I think this is an under diagnosis of, of this conditions a lot more than this. Um, there is, we know, we, we think, so we don't know the exact cause of this, but we do know that certain players are in this, in this IBS game. And this is obviously the gut, but also the nervous system. So, um, we have in our gut, the enteric nervous system, which is uh, its own nervous system, like the brain. So that's why we say the gut is the second brain because it has the second highest connection, uh, connections of neurons and and, and, and basically outside of the brain. Um, so the gut and the brain interact and do affect um, uh, IBS. So this is at play here. Um, and we think that some of the factors that can predispose patients to IBS, um, I'll talk about them later, are things like childhood trauma, um, but also we very commonly diagnose this condition after having some kind of um, gut, uh, bug in your, <laughs> bug in your gut, right? So after a gastroenteritis or a virus in your gut, um, a lot of patients, um, develop this hypersensitive gut and get diagnosed with IBS. Um, and obviously this is, even though it's an invisible disease, that means you don't see it out outwardly. You don't have any rashes. You don't have any, um, you know, um, issues that people can see. So it's an invisible disease. It's very, very damaging and it impacts, um, patients' quality of life, uh, significantly. But the good news is that there's a lot that we can do to manage these conditions. Um, a, a lot of people ask me, oh, can this be cured? I don't like to think of it like that because, um, for example, um, uh, somebody who suffers from anxiety on and off, can it be cured? Well, that means you're predisposed to anxiety, but we can definitely manage you in a way where you're thriving and your anxiety is managed. So um, I don't like... Uh, talking about these things like as in cure or not, um, obesity, can you cure it? Well, yes, but if you go back to your old habits, it'll come back. So yes, technically we can cure it or put, put it in remission, but if the same factors that caused it in the first place surface, then it'll come back. Um, so a lot of people confuse IBS and IBD. Um, IBS, um, as I mentioned, the results from a dysfunction in how the gut, the nervous system, and the brain interact. Um, it, it is a hypersensitive stomach and it results in abdominal pain or cramping or bloating and changes in your bowel habits. Um, how I personally manage IBS is a little bit differently from a lot of people, from a lot of uh, GI doctors. I manage it primarily through nutrition, lifestyle, and gut brain therapy therapies and evidence-based supplements we use when we need to, um, and um, medications when they're indicated. But a lot of the times I find that the medications are not indicated long-term um, and are not I don't need to use them in the majority of, of patients. Um, and then people confuse IBS with IBD, which is very different disease. It's called inflammatory bowel disease. Um, that is a diagnosis that is an umbrella term for things like Crohn's disease, ulcerative colitis, and microscopic colitis. The treatment is very differently, but we do uh, still do lifestyle, nutrition, and integrative therapies in my practice for patients with inflammatory bowel disease. Um, so I mentioned these before, so pain, cramping, diarrhea, and constipation, or constipation, and or, um, you can have both, bloating, um, patients with IBS tend to have food intolerances, um, some have very few, some have a lot of food intolerances, and they'll often say, hey, I can't tolerate fiber, um, my IBS just acts up, I cannot tolerate the abdominal bloating or the cramping, um, so we can talk about that in the Q&A at the end. 
And patients with IBS also suffer with fatigue. Um, about 50% of patients with IBS reported having fatigue. So um, many factors can impact the development um, or the progression of this condition. We mentioned that some of the risk factors associated with um, being diagnosed with IBS are having a, a, a bug a, in your stomach, a gastroenteritis um, or a viral illness in your gut. Um, chronic stress we know is one of the triggers for it. Um, food intolerances, I, I wouldn't say as a as a risk factor, I would say it is one of the symptoms of having IBS. Um, we see that spastic intestines, uh, an imbalance in your gut microbiome absolutely uh, can predispose you to IBS through many mechanisms, not only in that environment in the gut, but also in the gut-brain interaction. It can disrupt that if you have an imbalance in your gut microbiome. Um, and then early life trauma, um, uh, whether it be emotional, physical, or sexual trauma, it, um, those patients have an increased risk of developing irritable bowel syndrome and having anxiety, depression, or other mental or neurological disorders increases your risk of having IBS as well. Um, so managing IBS, as I mentioned before, um, there are many medications out there to manage IBS. And really, it's about manage, they manage the symptoms, they don't really get to the root cause of what is why you have IBS in the first place, but they help with the symptoms. And we certainly do use them to get patients to be more comfortable in the beginning um, if the discomfort is moderate or too severe and they can't and, and, and their quality of life is greatly affected. We can use medications, um, but these medications, in my opinion, shouldn't be used long-term just because it's a Band-Aid. You're managing the symptoms, giving the patient better quality of life, but you're not really getting to the root cause of what is triggering their IBS, which is whether this is a, a stressor, a past trauma they're not dealing with, whether this is a nutrition-based uh, uh, trigger, um, or what is at the root cause. So you really need to be doing both, managing their symptoms in the meantime to get them more comfortable, but also working to get to that root cause so you can give them that long-lasting healing that they need and hopefully put their, their disease into remission long-term. Um, so I'm not going to go through this. This is how to, uh, how to classify your stool. So we see patients with IBS are at either extreme, either very pebbly stool, hard stools, hard to pass, or um, they have watery or looser stools or a mix of both of these. This is called the bristle stool chart. We use this um, to help patients kind of guide us to how their stools look. Um, and um, you know, we have many different ways of managing each condition. For example, addressing constipation. Um, if you guys are not subscribed to my blog um, at drvanessamendez.com, drvanessamendez.com, I highly encourage you to. Um, we pump out a blog every week um, and they're really educational. Like the last one that I um, just released uh, last week, it's all about antibiotics and antibiotic stewardship and how to ask your doctor the right questions so that you're not prescribed antibiotics incorrectly um, and uh, what to do to recover from antibiotics so your gut recovers, your gut microbiome recovers. So definitely uh, recommend that you subscribe to my, um, to my newsletter and see my blogs because we have several blogs on constipation, for example. But some of my um, starting points with constipation um, that I want patients to start on are moving your body, you know, um, uh, if you're not doing anything, just getting up and doing something. Um, because when we are sitting, like right now, AJ and I are sitting, our gut is not really doing much, you know, but when we move, we move our abdominal muscles and that stimulates the gut to contract. So movement, any type of movement, even just being up and about is going to stimulate your gut to contract and help you relieve constipation. Obviously drinking enough water. One of the most common mistakes that people make when they um, switch to a plant-based diet, um, they go from zero to hundred in terms of how much fiber they're intaking, but they don't bring water along with it. So that's just going to block you up. So we need to be drinking lots and lots of water um, as we um, in, in increase the amount of fiber in our diet. 
and we should do we should increase the fiber in our diet gradually um, to not overwhelm your system because you know your system is not used to tolerating a lot of fiber uh, for some of you so if you just go from zero to 100 it's just going to overwhelm it um, so go slowly um, and and mindfully and and you should do well with bloating or constipation um, one of my favorite things to relieve constipation is um, kiwi. So actually, and you should be following my Instagram because I posted a uh, study um, how two kiwi per day. And what I recommend is when they're in season, stock up on kiwi, um, freeze them, and then you can use them throughout the year. So two kiwi per day was actually shown to be as beneficial as um, some constipation supplements and also as beneficial as prunes. And it was tolerated better. So kiwi had the least side effects of all of the other two therapies, prunes or um, um, a constipation supplement. So uh, we love kiwi. Um, working on your toilet habits. A lot of people sit on the, on the toilet for a long period of time. That's actually not recommended because you're putting a lot of pressure on that pelvic floor. The pelvic floor is basically all the muscles and ligaments that hold up your rectum, um, your genitals, and your urethra and your bladder. So when you're sitting on the toilet for a long period of time, and we love to do this, we love to go on social media or read while we're on the toilet, both men and women, and that's not actually better beneficial that's actually can develop long-term bad habits um, and contribute to constipation because the pelvic floor just has too much pressure there it'll start to relax and get weak so we don't want that um, and using a squatty potty it's one of my go-to strategies I have a recent article um, on this um, through live strong I think um, that we talk about squatty potty and squatty potty really means any stool you have laying around the home. Um, you put it underneath your feet so that when you're sitting on the toilet, your knees are above your hips. So kind of like you're lunging forward with your knees above your hips. Everybody should have a squatty potty, any stool you can bring that can elevate your knee, your, your legs and your knees, um, kind of like you're resting your, your, um, elbows on your knees, um, is beneficial because it opens up the rectal angle and allows for smoother passage of stool without so much pressure on that pelvic floor. So even if you don't suffer with digestive issues, you should have a squatty potty, um, especially with women, because we have a lot of pelvic organs, a lot more than men. So we tend to have a more weight down as we age of that pelvic floor and more pelvic floor dysfunction, but I recommend it for everybody. And obviously if you're suffering with chronic constipation or any of the symptoms we talk about here, you really need to be seeing a gas gastroenterologist. Um, and if you don't see improvement with some of these strategies, seeing a pelvic floor therapist, which is what I, we talked about the pelvic floor. A pelvic floor therapist is a physical therapist that specializes in pelvic floor and they're a godsend. I send all my females to a pelvic floor and a lot of my males um, who suffer with constipation because there's a lot that they can diagnose about weaknesses or you maybe you're contracting too much when you're trying to go to the bathroom and they have an integrative way of managing these conditions um, um, with breathing strategies, exercises, hip flexors, all that cool stuff. Um, so, you know, in terms of managing IBS, um, um, we have this low FODMAP diet that I'm sure many of you have heard is um, it was developed through Monash University on, in Australia, and um, it basically um, is a um, it's kind of a way to uh, recognize which foods are contributing to excess bloating or abdominal discomfort in patients with IBS specifically. So um, this diet, I'll, I see a lot of patients doing it for way longer than they need to. Most patients have been doing it for months and years. And this diet is actually an elimination, reintroduction, and personalization diet. So um, it really should be guided with a registered dietitian. It should not um, be something that is handed to you by one of your doctors. Hey, feel, here, follow this low FODMAP diet. Um, because long-term restriction of these um, a FODMAP, high FODMAP uh, gr uh, groups of food actually will worsen your gut microbiome. It, it is a restrictive way of eating. That means that you're going to be avoiding a lot of the high fiber foods that we actually recommend that you eat. Um, so we don't want you to do that for long term. And it really should be guided by somebody who knows how to do it. 
so that they can do the elimination period correctly. And then they can start working with you to reintroduce the foods. And in that reintroduction, the elimination period is to give you relief. It's going to give you relief from bloating, from discomfort. And then that reintroduction period will really define which foods you may be intolerant to. And then the personalization phase is working through, um, at least in our practice, how to get you to um, tolerate more variety of foods and even the foods that you were intolerant to. Does that mean starting with a little drop of that food, then a, a teaspoon, then a tablespoon, et cetera, getting you to tolerate eventually the food in its totality. So that's how we do it um, in our practice. But really you need to have, uh, if you're going to do this diet, uh, it needs to be guided with a registered dietitian. Um, so I'm not going to go into the details of the low FODMAP um, diet because it is, uh, it's extensive. Um, uh, so how do we manage IBS through lifestyle? So, you know, some of the things, um, that we do is, um, a lot like teaching you, educating you on how to tolerate some food. So one of the things that we love to talk to patients about is how to reduce bloating from beans, legumes, um, pulses. And what we want you to do is know that, um, all of these uh, legumes, pulses, beans are different. So you may actually tolerate some and not others. Um, and that these are really beneficial foods for the gut microbiome. They're full of prebiotics and they, these foods are eaten by the longest living populations throughout the world in the blue zones, right? So we really want to incorporate them in our diet, but a lot of people get discomfort with these foods because you're simply not used to eating them um, regularly. As Cuban-American, I grew up on these foods, so I tolerate, tolerate them well. But for example, my, my, my husband, who has Crohn's disease since he was 17 years old, used to not be able to eat any beans at all. Every time we would cook them, he would salivate. He would beg me to eat them. But every time he ate them, he got horrible horrible symptoms. Um, so when we switched to a plant-based diet and slowly started incorporating more high fiber foods, now he can eat like literally a bowl of beans. He can now eat me and beans. Um, so that's definitely something if you've been told, oh, to avoid them forever because you can't tolerate them. That is a lie. You just have to work with the right team in order to be able to tolerate them. So some things that we recommend are rinsing, for example, your canned beans or soaking overnight the dry beans um, adding herbs and spices because actually these help um, break down some of the components that may cause bloating and help you and help reduce bloating. So herbs and spices are a must when we're cooking beans or any fiber foods because they really help us digest them. Um, then obviously chewing thoroughly, mindfully, um, and staying hydrated through the process. As we mentioned before, when you increase your fi the fiber in your diet, you have to increase the water with it. But also buying sprouted um, is another good way of, of um, getting beans in, in a way that you tolerate them better. So a lot of different strategies we have for these foods. So some of the other integrative approaches we have um, include, um, so we talked about getting to the root cause. Is this more of a nutrition-based disorder for you? Are you just not eating the right foods or is this more of a gut-brain disorder for you? Meaning, is there uh, past trauma that, you know, that we're not dealing with? Um, is there a chronic stressor? Um, are you the caretaker in your family? You're putting on a lot and you're not, you're not really taking the time for self-care. So we work to identify what are the triggers for your IBS. And these are some of the strategies and def definitely this is not the whole list, but these are some of the strategies that we incorporate. So there's lots of different breathing strategies that help engage the vagus nerve that runs from our gut to our brain and back and forth. Um, engaging the vagus nerve with vagal nerve maneuvers is a must in IBS. It's really going to strengthen that gut-brain connection um, and improve your visceral hypersensitivity. Deep breathing, belly breathing, diaphragmatic breathing, so many different breathing techniques. Um, meditation is a long-term game, right? So deep breathing strategies we can go into right away and do them anytime, anywhere. Meditation is really a long-term practice. Um, meditation and yoga are, are kind of like training for, for a 5K or a half marathon. It needs to be done regularly and long-term in order for you to see the benefits. But deep breathing, we can um, 
see the benefits right away. Things like acupuncture, obviously moving your body, um, nature bathing, forest bathing have all been associated with improvements in mood, but also in pain. So we use them in patients with IBS. And as I mentioned before, identifying which patients will benefit from pelvic floor uh, therapies um, is really important. This is uh, an underutilized referral um, that a lot of people would benefit from. And cognitive behavioral therapy, working with a therapist through your traumas, through your stressors, is all important in management of IBS. So um, I'm not going to go into, um, into these slides because I really want to leave time and space for questions. Um, but this is our wonderful um, integrative team at Planted Forward. So our website is plantedforward.com. Um, and if you go to the provider section, you can see each of us, um, our services, um, where we see patients, our pricing, and all of that. Um, and um, my integrative digestive team is made up of um, Amanda Sevilla. She's a yoga instructor, mindfulness coach, um, and registered dietitian. Um, so she works a lot with the patients that have gut brain issues. Um, and I, Ten, and Natalie are my GI specialized dietitians who are specialized in working with patients with all types of digestive disorders. This is what where they've done their training. And um, we just have a wonderful team. And even if you can't see me, you likely can see one of them. And again, like I mentioned, we work together as a team. And then we also have for patients who have other conditions, we have um, or if you just need a pediatrician, um, we have Yolanda, uh, Dr. Yolanda Rivera-Caudil. She's a lifestyle pediatrician. We have Nicole Harkin, who's our preventative cardiologist. Um, and we have uh, Jackie Tarleton, who's our health coach. She's a yoga instructor, fitness coach, and also um, registered dietitian by training. So we just have a wonderful team. Um, and uh, we'd love to hear from you and um, how we can, you know, serve this community who's in so much need of help, you know, like not only everybody on here, but just patients suffering throughout uh, the US and worldwide that would um, benefit from our services. And we see patients internationally as well. Wow, thank you so much. I learned so much. There's some nice comments I wanna read you. One is from Robin. Love you, Dr. Mendez. You are the best GI doctor. <laughs> One of them, maybe she's a Thank patient. you, Robin. Yeah. And uh, let's see, I saw some other ones and I actually took some notes because I had a question to answer. Uh, here's a funny comment. I have IBS, but I don't like dealing with poop. Well, that's what's nice about being a gastroenterologist. You don't mind dealing with poop or talking about it. Absolutely. We're knee deep in poop. <laughs> you mentioned the kiwis were more effective in studies than prunes. I think a lot of people don't know that. And I think kiwis taste a lot better. So, okay, so um, the study compared um, kiwi prunes and I think psyllium husk, which is one of the supplements we use, it also comes in a powder, you know, um, so uh, kiwi was just as good as prunes or psyllium, but it had less side effects, um, which is great. Um, because some of the others can have side effects, like actually um, it can relieve constipation, but increase bloating. Um, prunes and psyllium, I've, you know, patients do come, sometimes patients complain that those two will increase their bloating, but kiwi doesn't. And kiwi is just a great, a great addition to your diet. So does it have to be fresh or can it be dried kiwi? Um, so it does have to be uh fresh or frozen. It, sh it shouldn't be the dried ones. Um, yeah, because they just lose a lot of water in the drying process. Good to know. You yeah. mentioned that one of the things you do to help patients manage their IBS is gut brain therapy. There's mm -hmm. two parts to that question. You say manage. So that leads me to believe that maybe IBS really can't be cured. Yeah. So as I mentioned before, a lot of patients ask, um, and a lot of people just ask if um, IBS can be cured. And as I mentioned, it's a condition like a diabetes. Can diabetes be cured? Yes, you can put diabetes into remission, right? You can reverse it, but uh, will that mean that you're cured forever? No, because whatever risk factors um, were there to, to cause that, um, if you go back to those, like, poor nutrition, then the diabetes will come back, right? So um, we really need to identify what triggers your IBS. And if we manage the triggers, yes, absolutely. You can go into remission long-term.
Perfect. And what, what are some of these gut brain therapies that you do with patients? Yeah. So, um, basically, um, the gut and the brain are connected to three different pathways. Um, one of the major pathways is the vagus nerve. So we'll come back to that one. But the other two uh, pathways are through um, basically the creation of hormones and enzymes that the gut uh, creates and it sends them throughout the body, but it's also locally acting. Um, the gut microbiome creates short chain fatty acids that are able to cross the blood brain barrier and they do have an effect in that gut brain interaction. So having a beneficial microbiome profile is going to be helpful to managing IBS. Um, and as I mentioned, the vagus nerve is that third pathway that um, runs from the gut and the brain we want to engage the vagus nerve. So we do that through vagal nerve maneuvers. There are many vagal nerve maneuvers and I have several of these um, maneuvers in, in my social media, but also on my website. Um, but things like humming, things like deep breathing, belly breathing, engage the vagus nerve um, so that you activate your parasympathetic nervous system. We have two major um, nervous systems um, in our body, we have the fight or flight, which is the sympathetic nervous system. And then the opposite system is the parasympathetic nervous system is the rest and digest. If we are not in a resting state, and that doesn't mean lounging in your house um, and doing nothing, you could be lounging in your house and be in, in fight or flight. It's all about how you're perceiving your environment. Are you really at peace? We can be at peace while we're at work, while we're in the middle of traffic. It's all about working to engage that parasympathetic nervous system. So the, by engaging the vagus nerve through deep breathing exercises, for example, another strategy are cold showers um, and humming, for example, um, by engaging that vagus nerve often, you know, once, twice, three times per day, we're activating the rest and digest pathway. And that really optimizes the digestive system to receive the food, to churn it, process it, extract the nutrients it needs, and then send it on to the small bowel and colon, where in the colon, it's not going to cause a lot of bloating or discomfort as your microbiome is working to extract those last nutrients um, and all the nutrients from fiber. All that gas production and fermentation is not going to cause you to have out of proportion pain. So by engaging the vagus nerve through those different maneuvers, such as humming, cold showers, deep breathing as the lowest hanging fruit, we can do that anytime, anywhere, then we can really um, optimize the digestive system and decrease that visceral hypersensitivity that is causing all that bloating and abdominal pain in, in your case. Nice. Well, now maybe we can combine this and hum in the shower instead of singing in the shower. <laughs> Cold shower and humming. Let's that do it. Sounds great. That is that's so interesting. And yeah. here's another nice comment from MJ. I've learned so much today. An amazing session. Thanks for presenting the program. You're so oh. welcome. So now we have some questions that were sent in. And guys, you know, whenever a doctor's a guest, we get a lot of questions. You got to email <laughs> them in advance. We give those priority. The first one is from Heidi. And she says her nine-year-old niece was just diagnosed with an extremely rare condition called pediatric collagenous gastritis. She says she knows there is little known about the treatment, that, but the inflammation is obviously key. Her mother's an endocrinologist, but the holistic side of things is generally not what they follow. I have seen that gluten-free can help. Is this something you're familiar with? And can you see uh, younger patients or can you only see adults? Yeah, absolutely. So I am an adult gastroenterologist, but my uh, registered dietitians can see um, kids. Um, so unfortunately, we're seeing a lot more gastroenteritis, gastritis, uh, colitis in kids uh, nowadays. And there's definitely a lot to this has definitely a lot to do with the current uh, state of the world that we're living in, um, the food processing, um, the excessive hygiene that we're living under. Um, this is all contributing to these autoimmune conditions and also um, GI related conditions. Um, so, so definitely, I think our registered dietitians, depending on which state you are, are able to work with you. Um, 
um, one of the things that I posted about today on my social media um, is if your child is struggling or as an adult, you're struggling to keep weight on, you have too many food intolerances um, or you have vitamin and nutrient deficiencies, um, the number one supplemental formula we recommend um, is Kate Farms. Um, they're um, organic, vegan, and they don't have chemical additives like a lot of those shakes like Ensure's probably the worst thing you could put boost and ensure the worst things you could put in your body um so in children unfortunately it's really they can really quickly lose weight and become malnourished when they're struggling with these gi conditions so look into kate farms um but also work with a registered dietitian um with these food related issues um so that the child doesn't uh, suffer malnutrition or or vitamin or nutrient deficiencies. Um, and that would be my best advice. And if, you know, uh, with kids, there's a lot of unknowns, especially in this autoimmune and digestive space. So if you don't have a local GI pediatrician that can really help you going to a center of excellence, such as, you know, um, as a second opinion, such as Cleveland Clinic, Mayo, um, or these bigger academic centers. So I don't know what happened to AJ, <laughs> um, but I will keep talking. Oh, my sorry. I, 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 I accidentally. Well, that was so great that you were willing to go on with the show. I accidentally must have hit the button and I muted myself. That is funny, but I could hear you the whole time. And I said, thank you for, 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 for answering that question. Here's a question from Michelle. And she says that she's following Dr. B's growth protocol out of his new cookbook to try to determine histamine and salicylate intolerances. I suspect maybe both, but he says they have similar symptoms. Have you ever seen anyone with both? And if so, have they overcome them? I've had swelling in my face and tongue from taking extra strength Excedrin as a teenager. So I'm not sure if I'm just allergic to aspirin or if I have a salicylate intolerance. Yeah. So, I mean, um, Will's new cookbook is amazing because he really, um, <laughs> he really um, talks about a subject that a lot of GI doctors and the rest of the doctors don't have any training on, don't have any knowledge of. And he really is making this information widely available to so many people and helping so many Um but with these conditions, it's really important that you do see somebody who can help you. So again, working with an integrative team of a GI doctor and a registered dietitian is really important um, to decipher if you're suffering with both, if you're just suffering with one, and how to overcome this. So, you know, you need that personalized approach that a book won't, you know, a, can't really give you because you know it's you're reading it and you're interpreting it but you're not getting that second opinion that you need to really walk you through that process you may need um allergy testing um and definitely an integrative approach would be the way to go um to get to the bottom of what what your issue is and how to overcome it great thanks okay here's a question from melissa I had a colonoscopy three years ago and was diagnosed with diverticulosis. After that, I began eating whole food plant-based. I recently had a colonoscopy and there was no mention of diverticulosis. I didn't think this condition ever went away. Can you explain how eating whole food plant-based might have changed the diagnosis? Yeah, I love that question. Um, so um, the colon and a colonoscopy, the colon is, uh, even though we think of it as a hollow tube, it actually has a lot of um, waves. It's constantly moving, even while we're doing a colonoscopy, it has a lot of folds. So diverticula are these small pockets um, that can be small, medium, or large, um, and can predispose you to infection of these diverticula. Um, they can uh, bleed as well. Um, so they get, can get complicated. They can even rupture, requiring that you go undergo uh, a partial colon resection, uh, removal of a part of your bowel. So one of the most common risk factors for diverticulosis is a low fiber diet. So um, uh, for many decades, uh, patients, uh, because there wasn't any data available, um, they used to be told, um, actually, don't do a, a, a high fiber diet, because you're going to 
you're going to worsen your diverticulosis, you're going to have complications from it. Well, we have large scale studies actually showing the opposite that a high fiber diet is actually preventative um, in terms of complications from diverticulosis. It'll prevent complications such as bleeding, infection, or progression of di the diverticular disease. So these small pockets, um, when we eat, um, they can get they can uh, get irritated when we eat. Um, but what study shows is that a high fiber diet, because it bulks up your stool, remember, as long as you're drinking enough water, it's going to bulk up your stool and it's going to prevent any stool particles from lodging in these small pockets. So it's actually bulking up your stool and kind of creating a film around this. So it comes out large volume bowel movements, smooth, et cetera. What the worst part is the pebbly stools, such as in constipation, those are the ones that can get lodged in the diverticula. So we don't want constipation and we know fiber can help uh, prevent constipation or help alleviate constipation, fiber and water. Um, these large scale studies actually showed that patients who ate even um, uh, popcorn, nuts and seeds, which patients with diverticulosis were previously told to completely avoid because they were gonna get lodged in these small pockets, actually showed that high fiber, even with nuts, seeds, grains, and uh, popcorn prevented complications from it. So what probably happened is that your diverticula were likely irritated before and they were very visible, but now they are, they're still there. They don't recede, but they are small and they're not irritated. So they're hiding behind a fold um, and they weren't perceived. I see it all the time. I'll do a patient's colonoscopy one year. Then we work through a high fiber diet, tons of water movement. And then the next year we'll repeat it and I won't be able to see their diverticula. They're still there. They don't, the, the tissue doesn't grow back but they're not irritated and the condition hasn't progressed, which is the best news possible. So that's likely what happened in your case. Great, I love the explanation, thanks. So this is from Nathalie. Could you please ask Dr. Mendez why I would have bile going back up to my stomach when it's too bad it causes pain and I feel it in my back under my right shoulder blade. I do not have a gallbladder anymore. Yeah, so many reasons for that. Um, it could have it could be that you your stomach motility is not is not how it should be that things are not moving along as as much as they should. And when the bowel or your stomach is not contracting, um, or things are not moving along, then bile is gonna uh, come back from the small bowel into your stomach and maybe even go up to your to your, um, your esophagus and cause heartburn. So it could be many things. Um, having had your gallbladder removed is one of the risk factors that can contribute to the bile um, coming back up. So anatomical difference, prior surgeries, um, the motility of your gut not, not being how it should, being too slow, um, other issues like small intestinal bacterial overgrowth um, could also be at play, but that's less likely. So it's likely because of the surgery, unfortunately, and your, your stomach not having the motility that it needs to. There is a lot we can do to alleviate that, but it has to be uh, through getting to the bottom of what caused it in the first place. So a personalized approach. Oh, she could have a consultation with you get to the bottom of it. I posted yeah. the link on how to do it. It's also in the show notes. Awesome. This is from Keisha. Uh, well, you kind of answered this, but she's asking for a specific number. How many prunes will naturally help constipation or are there other foods that will naturally help? I'm off already on a whole food plant-based SOS free diet. Thank you. I think in the study they used, don't quote me, look at my Instagram, um, but I think in the study they used 10 prunes, which is a lot. Um, so I'd rather do two kiwi, um, but, but don't quote me on that, go to the study on my profile. And if you can't find it, just message me through there and I'll send it to you. Okay, thank you. This is from Brenda. I know that potatoes and tomatoes are so good for us, yet my hubby is sensitive to nightshades, potatoes, tomatoes, and peppers. And of course he loves these foods and he eats lots of them. How do these foods affect someone who has nightshade sensitivities and what can they do for this situation? And what substitutes do you suggest? 
Yeah. So why does he have nightshade sensitivity? And is it really a nightshade sensitivity? There could be, there's a lot of unknowns with that situation. Um, It's not common to have nightshade sensitivity. And then, so is it really a a sensitivity to nightshades? And two, um, why does he have it? There should be an explanation of some microbiome dysfunction there. Um, Some issues that the, that the, the, the microbes are not digesting these nightshades correctly. Um, so it would be in working through that, that we would um, uh, identify the cause and help him tolerate the nightshades, right? The idea is to be able to tolerate a high variety of foods, not to restrict them. And I'm glad that he loves them and is trying to incorporate them in his diet, but we need to get to the root cause of why. Yep, Absolutely. So this is from Anonymous because it's a sensitive issue. It's about, I believe, the pelvic floor. I have a very severe pelvic organ prolapse and I'm trying to avoid surgery. Prolapse likely caused by three hours of pushing out a posterior baby. I've done extensive pelvic floor PT and sometimes use a pessary to help. I have eaten a Chef AJ McDougal style SOS free diet for 13 years. I'm very lean and I find to eat, need to eat a lot of food to maintain my weight. The pressure of six to nine pounds of food puts on my gut and pelvic floor throughout the day makes my prolapse very symptomatic. I've resorted to eating one huge meal at night, off and on for several years now to minimize the symptoms during the day, but this has caused constipation issues, the beginning of GERD and other problems. I'm considering surgery to fix the POP, but I'm afraid eating large volumes of bulky food during the day will cause the repair to fail. I find nuts very addictive and they give me gallbladder pain. So I don't find adding those higher caloric dense foods in my diet to be a feasible solution. Any thoughts? This sounds like a very complicated situation. Absolutely. Very complicated. I'm glad that you have had um, extensive physical therapy with a pelvic floor therapist. Um, I would ask you, have you seen, uh, have you gotten other second opinions of other pelvic floor therapists? Um, And what do they think? Have they been able to help you? Um, There's certainly a lot nutrition wise we can do to prevent that huge bulk of food from coming into your pelvic floor and weighing it down. So I would highly recommend working with a registered dietitian. And if you haven't, um, because there's a lot we can do nutritionally wise to maximize your nutrition and not have that bulk um, at one time, um, kind of like that dumping into your pelvic floor. Um, so working with a registered dietitian is a must. And then I would urge you, if you haven't thought, sought a second or third opinion with another pelvic floor therapist, uh, to do so because they may have another take on it. So those would be my two recommendations, but certainly, a you know, a severe case of pelvic floor dysfunction. Um, like I mentioned with women, um, many issues are at play, many risk factors for having pelvic floor dysfunction, which will affect not only um, causes constipation, um, it can cause us, um, you know, fecal incontinence or leakage, it can cause us uh, sexual dysfunction, pain when we have sex, Um, it can cause uh, uh, urinary dysfunction, so bladder incontinence, or even cystitis, chronic inflammation of the bladder. So many different things in the women's in the woman's pelvic floor that can be affected. And the risk factors are certainly hormonal shifts as we age, um, carrying large babies, any abdominal surgeries, um, many, many things, uh, and just having so many different, so many more organs than men. Um, we're just lucky enough uh, to, to, to have all of that. Um, but those would be my two recommendations for her. So thank you. This is a lovely comment from Essa who says, I had an appointment with Dr. Mendez yesterday. Very informative and helpful. She is awesome. Oh, thank you, Issa. (laughs) You know, that part of the question that intrigued me was the part about eating large volumes of food, because in dealing with helping people lose weight using caloric density, you know, when you eat a lower calorically dense diet, you're going to have to eat a larger volume of food. And I'm just wondering how much food can the GI tract handle? Because when I think about people that are hundred percent raw, that also eat a low fat diet, they're eating, I mean, like 10 to 14 pounds of food a day. And I'm, are, are we able to handle all that? 
Absolutely. So we have a very, very long digestive uh, tract. Like our small bowel is many feet long, you know, so we can certainly accommodate a lot of food um, in our digestive system. So um, yes, absolutely. You know, we're, we're um, really biologically, we are made to be able to um, tolerate a fully herbivore diet. Wow. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's interesting. Well, those are all the questions that are submitted in. I want to respect your time. If you have time to take one or two more for the chat, we can do that. Or you can Yeah, absolutely. Let's take uh, uh, okay. some from the people that are here. <laughs> okay, great. Well, thank you. I, I try to prioritize the ones that send them in because they did mm-hmm. take the time to write. So Mary Beth, who's watching live says, I don't have a gallbladder. I've been having pain in my abdomen abdomen area. It was removed 10 years ago. My doc suggests an MRI to see if stones are back, but I thought removing the gallbladder solved the stone problem. What are your thoughts? Yeah, absolutely. So you don't have a gallbladder, so you're not going to have stones in your gallbladder, but we do, um, we can uh, have a little bit of stones still sometimes stuck in the bile ducts that are still there that are draining from um, the pancreas and the liver. So um, that uh, an MRI is a good study because it doesn't have radiation and um, it's able to visualize a lot of your um, abdominal organs, your digestive organs. So I, I don't disagree with that. Um, but abdominal pain can be caused by many things. So um, stones would not be high on my differential of what's going on there. Um, but I think an MRI is a good study to get done. So definitely follow up with that. Right. And Diane says, do you have suggestions for GERD? Yeah. So I have a, a, a blog post and an article uh, and, 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 and on my Instagram as well, some posts on this. So again, it's getting to the root cause of your GERD. Is it uh, an anatomical issue? Have you had surgeries? Do you have excess abdominal uh, fat? So fat around your midsection is one of the contributing factors for heartburn um, in many people. So even if you're thin, but you're carrying a little excess weight around your midsection, that can certainly be the cause of it. Um, One of my favorite integrative approaches to deal with uh, GERD or heartburn acid reflux is um, to do diaphragmatic breathing. So the diaphragm sits uh, right between your lungs, one of our breathing muscles. Um, So lungs, diaphragm, uh, your diaphragm, and then your your abdomen, all of that, right? So when you, when we have heartburn, or acid reflux, usually that is a dysfunction of the um, muscle or sphincter that connects our esophagus with our stomach that um, with time, with excess abdominal weight, um, that muscle that divides our esophagus from our stomach gets looser and it's not able to seal um, the stomach contents, that acid from going up into your esophagus. So that's where you feel the acid reflux or heartburn. So what we want to do is tighten that muscle, but we want to do it um, in a non-surgical way, right? So one of the best therapies is diaphragmatic breathing, because this is a special breathing technique that in uh, research studies has been shown to tighten that diet, like strengthen the diaphragm so that that muscle is tightened. Um, And patients with time um, and practice of this diaphragmatic breathing are able to tighten that muscle and improve their heartburn or acid reflux in an in a integrative way. So I would definitely recommend look, looking into diaphragmatic breathing, um, but also getting to the root cause of why you have acid reflux to begin with. Is it diet? Is it an anatomy? Is it excess weight in your abdomen? Many reasons why. Thanks. Uh, Dawn says, I'm bloated all the time and I wasn't before. It just happened really since I had COVID. I'm not sure why. I've been eating a lot of veggies and smoothies to help, but I still bloat after a meal. I have Hashimoto's and they say that can cause bloating. Bloating is like a real common symptom, isn't it? Yeah, it's the most common symptom. So, um, you know, we didn't talk about COVID in this uh, presentation, but we are seeing a lot of new digestive um, issues after COVID. We know that the digestive system has a lot of SARS-CoV-2 receptors. So outside of the lungs, the digestive system likely has the second highest number of receptors that these viruses 
bind to. And we say, okay, but I had mild COVID or I had no symptoms with COVID. How is it that it's affecting my digestive system? Unfortunately, these viruses bind to your digestive system and can stay there for months. Um, obviously, we've only known of this pandemic for two, two and a half years. So we don't know if it stays in your system for longer than that, but it does bind for your to your digestive system for weeks and months, and it wreaks havoc. Studies show that it actually changes your gut microbiome um, to a more pro-inflammatory gut microbiome. Do we think that that's long lasting? I personally don't think so. If we uh, put all the right strategies with nutrition and lifestyle into play, we I, I know we can reverse that. I've seen it with my patients, um, but definitely COVID does affect your gut. And I'm not at all surprised that it, it caused your bloating. And we just need to get that microbiome back in an integrative approach um, through nutrition and lifestyle. So um, there's just been an imbalance in your microbiome. So now the microbes that are able to digest those foods are either reduced in number or you have more of the bad ones. So we just have to get that microbiome back into shape. Right, great. Well, thanks. This has been so enlightening. I hope people will make appointments with you because we have testimonials from people watching live that you're a wonderful doctor and you're obviously very knowledgeable. So thank you so much, Dr. Mendez. Thank you so much, AJ. I'm always happy to be on here. You're bringing so much great information to, to our communities. And thank you guys for tuning in. Uh, reach out to me uh, through my website, drdrdrvanessamendez.com um, or social media at plantbasedgutduck. Um, AJ has all that information there or through Planted Forward if you want to, if you're interested in booking with any of our integrative uh, providers. And one of your dietitians will be on later on this year. I know. I love it. You guys are going to meet Aitan later on. I love Thank it. you so much. Thanks, Dr. Mendez. And thanks all of you for watching another episode of Chef AJ Live. Please come back tomorrow when my guest is Yelena Perez. She is going to be making fresh sweet potato summer rolls with a low calorie peanut.